live from Shelley's back room. It is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your moderator, Justin Russell. Joining me around the table, Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Carl Tuvin, Alan Moore, Dan Lipner, and Rear Admiral Ken Carradine. It's Tuesday, which means it's time for Backroom Politics. Let's join the roundtable live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. And good afternoon out there in America. It's Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Back Room Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, he is the former vice president, or he's the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation, and former Ford chief for then minority leader Gerald R. Ford. He is Bob Hines. Hello, Bob. Hello, Justin. And to my 11 o'clock, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing the 2nd Congressional District of Washington State. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Hello, Justin. And to my 12 o'clock directly across the table, he is the retired one-star admiral from your United States Navy. He is Admiral Ken Carradine. Hello, Admiral. Hey, Justin. And to my 1 o'clock, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served at last count under four presidents, former long-term staffer, Washington Insider. He is Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hey, Daddy. And to my 3 o'clock, he is the former... Executive Director of the Democratic Party of the Great State of Maryland and former lobbyist for 20th Century Fox, Carl Tubin. Hello, Justin. And to my the only non-former. Who's that? The guy you're about to introduce. Oh, he's not a better. No, he's not a former. <laughs> oh, thank yeah. you, finally. He is, he <laughs> is, a, bar, he is a bar certified attorney in the Great State of Maryland and the District of Columbia. Longtime political operative for the Democratic Party and former Biden political operative. He is Dan Littner Esquire. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Justin. And by the way, I didn't realize our entry music was so uplifting. It is. It is. Because we are trying to make radio great again. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, so in case you haven't noticed, there's only two weeks until the series finale of The Greatest Show on Earth, America. That's what's uh, around 240, 240 years of great history, and we've come to this. Two weeks left. But because it, there's only two weeks, you know it's going to be a flaming dumpster fire of garbage. And lo and behold, we go to it right now. First of all, polls have come out. Uh, it is a little bit of back and forth. There are one or two legitimate polls that have Trump up one or two points. However, a majority, according to Real Clear Politics, have the Democratic candidate, Hillary Rodham Clinton, up anywhere from as little as four points to as many as ten. Those polls are phony. And and those totally wait, 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 wait. I was going to say, the, the other polls are the ones that actually polled outside of the Trump family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Monmouth is one of them, and they're close. They're in New Jersey. So anyway, but uh, right now it looks like that we have Donald Trump speaking to a crowd in Sanford, Florida. Hillary earlier just gave a dueling speech down in Coconut Creek, Florida. They are now focused on the key, key pivot states 
in this election. We should have dueling banjos playing in the background. We should have dueling banjos. Unfortunately, we didn't get the license for that. Let's let's start off real quick. Alan Moore, let's start with you. When we look at the, at, at the key states that are still in play right now, the, the, the map itself, does it really match up to what we're seeing in the polling right now? Does Donald Trump have a point that the, that the polling may be skewed a little bit? Well, there's two things. So there's a national national poll numbers that are out there that are interesting in terms of the mood of the country, but we've had several presidents who have won a, a electoral uh, a vote majority, but have lost the electoral vote. Um, so it, it's not that important. What's really important is what's going on in the individual states. Um, most of the, the, the sophisticated analyses are looking at, you know, six, seven, eight swing states. Um, and on the assumption that the that, that Hillary Clinton is going to win most of the others, that Obama won, that Trump will win uh, a good number of those that uh, that Romney won, and then there's this uh, these these states that are in play. Those are the polls that really matter because you're not trying to win a majority of the actual votes. You're trying to win a majority of the electoral votes. You're trying to get to 270 electoral votes. And the only way to know how what, how you're doing is to look at individual states. And when you look at all of those individual states and the path we're on, it's hard to find a pathway that gets Donald Trump elected. That's just the fact for Donald Trump. But Congressman Al, when, as somebody who's actually had to use polling as a former member of Congress, going off of Alan's point, when we look at the individual state poll, uh, it seems to me that the dynamics have changed back when you would use polling, when a majority of Americans had landlines, now a majority of Americans use cell phones as their primary use or their primary mode of communicating. Is, is that something that both parties should like take a look at the polling numbers and go, are these real? Well, I think both parties are. <clears throat> Clearly, campaigning has changed a whole hell of a lot since I was campaigning. My last one was in somewhere 19, in the 90s. 1997. 97. I'm sorry, 94. 94, 94 yeah. And I would think that both parties should be well aware that uh, you, you've, got to, you've got to read the polls knowledgeably. You can't just accept the numbers. Uh, as such, uh, I, I think that uh, there's, there's reason for Democrats to not be cheering yet. Dan Littner. Well, I agree with the last statement. Do not be cheering yet is always wise since we are Democrats and always capable of snatching defeat out of the jaws of victory. Uh, that said, presidential elections tend to be a bit of an outlier, and I mean an outlier on the accuracy of the polls, because more people are more likely to vote, and the being able to gauge the electorate is, is a little bit easier on presidential elections. It's off here in down ballot where you have things that you don't expect. Name recognition becomes an issue just out of the gate. Everyone can tell you who Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump is. They both have universal name recognition. But that drops off catastrophically once you start talking down ticket beyond Senate and even sometimes Senate and governor's race. But once you start going down from there, you can start making relatively easy predictions. Then the question is turnout, and then it's an issue of weight. 
when Obama won his last two elections, it was pretty clear he was going to win. But part of that, and besides his win, was slightly underestimated because turnout was under-projected both times. So when you consider at the presidential level, that's the question. This polling cycle, the real issue is how much Donald Trump and split tickets are going to be happening uh, because of Donald Trump. Poor Kelly Ayotte in uh, New Hampshire looks like she isn't going to escape the Trump catastrophe, whereas John McCain is out polling Trump hugely in Arizona. And we're going to talk about that in a second, but we do want to talk about breaking news right now. CNN is reporting that uh, former Secretary of State and former Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General and Secretary Colin Powell has officially endorsed Hillary Rodham Clinton for the presidency of the United States. Can you get it by email? Admiral Ken, is is this How's a, that joke patch? <laughs> trust me. I'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Don't beg. Yeah, don't, don't beg. For yeah. It's, it's really yeah. pathetic. Thank you, Ben. Admiral Ken, how, how <laughs> much influence over the military front does Colin Powell have, if any, and will this help sell Hillary Clinton to the members of the armed forces? Uh, I... I, I don't know, honestly. Um, you know, he's been he's been out of the service for a while. Um, he's on a speaking circuit. Uh, I don't think most of the people that he addresses uh, are current members of the military. Uh, Secretary General Powell has always had a pretty loyal following. Um, I think uh, a, a lot of the folks in the military who were real backers of him um, kind of went a different direction when he when he endorsed um, uh, President Obama when he was running for office. Honestly, I don't know, and I think that falls into the line of I'm not entirely sure what endorsements from anybody does anymore. I think, quite frankly, withdrawal of endorsements probably have more of an effect these days than people granting endorsements. Alan Moore. So, so given the fact that he endorsed uh, Obama against McCain. And against McCain and Palin, let's let's right. remember. Um, and I think he mentioned her in his endorsement as one of the reasons he was endorsing Obama. And then continued to endorse Obama four years later, which was a bigger surprise, I think. Um, when it comes to him endorsing Clinton, uh, given all that's gone on, and given the the, the challenges that that Donald Trump's candidacy creates for responsible Republicans, my question is, what took him so long? <laughs> or, wait, now? Didn't he do that a while back? So I'd say no big surprise. I have to, I have to add. No significant impact. I have to add, I'm not surprised by, by, by Secretary Powell's endorsement of Hillary Clinton for a couple of reasons. One, he's been in the job, and he knows that it looks, it's a great deal more complicated than it looks on TV. And then, two, at the end of the day, um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hard-pressed, uh, and I've, I've, sought, I've sought them out to find any black people that are Trump supporters. Uh, that's true. There was one on TV with a sign. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know him, and I don't know if he's being paid to be there. Wow. <laughs> Carl Thurman, you had a point. Well, I've got a couple of points. Number one, a few weeks ago when, uh, yeah. when it looked like this uh, yeah. election was over, everybody was asking me, uh, will Trump be, able, Trump be able to come back? <clears throat> and I said to him, that I said to them that I'm on this show every Tuesday, and all during the primaries, 
when Trump would trip, we would think, okay, he's he's gone, and he always managed to come back. And I said, I hope it's not going to happen this time, but you never know. And also, Nate Silver has, has said, said this morning that <clears throat> Hillary's going to win the president, and that we're going to take back the Senate, and there's a good chance that we're going to take back the House. From his mouth to God's ears. Right. So when we look at Nate Silver from 538 Politics, uh, anyway, going going back to that, let's look, I want to look at Colin Powell a little bit because Alan Moore, Colin Powell's been out of play as far as being a leading public figure. Could could Colin Powell be the new movement in the Republican Party of more sensible, practical, realist, moderate Republicans? If this does turn into a flaming dumpster fire for GOP, can 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 a guy who's in his mid seventies who endorsed Barack Obama not once but twice and Hillary Clinton become the new head of a united Republican Party? Not on your life. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Bob Hines, though. Not to mention, I don't think he would want to be. There, there is that. No, no. I mean, that, that's that's actually a real point. I mean. Arguably, Colin Powell could have been president of the United States and he wanted to do it. So him passing on that was not an insignificant thing. He is a real leader and a real patriot. It's unfortunate that that doesn't have uh, more more legs in today's local environment. Well, he doesn't seem to want to do it. Bob Hines. Yeah, no, he obviously. It. He's done his bit for God and yeah, country. That's right. Yeah, that, that is true. Going back to uh, some of the key states that are in play right now, I want to talk about a couple of them. Obviously, the one that's got everybody's attention today in the news cycle is, in fact, Florida with both candidates there. Uh, Bob Hines, how important is Florida for both candidates? Well, Florida has uh, over 20 electoral votes, a large number. It's probably got, I think it's probably about the, don't get many, much more than that. It's a play, it's a state that is always in play. I think that uh, it's, it's, I think what Florida, I, I make the bet right now that Florida is going to be in the, in, the, uh, in the ledger of the winning person. This, candidate, no doubt. Alan Moore, does, does Donald Trump have a viable route? To 270 without Florida? Is there any scenario that doesn't include Florida as a win for him? I don't, absolutely not. I don't think he has a route to, to 270 with Florida. But without Florida, he has zero chance and he has almost no chance with Florida. Congressman Al. I think there is one prediction that Bob and I can make with absolute certainty. And that is the networks will not be calling Florida before the panhandle votes are counted. You better, you better believe it. They've oh, looked, wow. They've, they've looked dumb enough along the those, those areas are not really Florida. They're known as Lord Georgia and Lord Alabama. <laughs> that, is, that is true. Deep Alabama. Well, yeah, that, that, that panhandle of Florida is scary. Well, or, Alan Moore. or if they do call it early, it's because Clinton is just swamped. The, the the southern part of the state so significantly that 
that uh, that Trump couldn't catch up. Well, except that no. the, 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 the networks have pledged that they won't call until yeah. all the phones oh, well, fine. Are oh, then we're good. Then we're good. Okay, Dan Lipner. No. Well, I mean, Florida is all about the I four quarter. One of those things that while well, the majority of Democrats are are in South Florida, but people fail to to actually register is there's a remarkably large number of Republicans there. They're just in the minority, but still raw number, a large voting block. But the but for Trump crazy alienation of Latinos and Hispanics, that's going to change the South Florida number. So the I-4 quarter, which is the, the realm from Tampa, Orlando to Daytona, which generally dictates how Florida will go, might not be as important this time around. That will actually be the interesting thing to see and how that affects the really? Rubio Mur- Murphy matchup. Well, but he did, here's, a, here's an interesting question, though. Alan Moore, today, while in Miami area... Donald Trump spoke in front of the Bay of Pigs Veterans Group in, uh, in, in, in Little Havana, and they came out and endorsed him. Is there a conflict <laughs> with – I mean, is there a legitimate conflict between – I'm going bigger picture. Don't laugh too hard, Dan. Is there a legitimate conflict between the traditionally conservative Cuban Republicans in South Florida – versus the attack on the Latino communities by Donald Trump. First of all, I have to I have to reflect on the fact that that uh that candidate Tim Kaine has had trouble getting much of a crowd uh at, at some of his uh, appearances because he's the vice presidential candidate. I'm thinking how big can a crowd of Bay of Pigs veterans possibly be. Are you talking about 11 guys that are, that are, that are in a... That are in a no, there were descendants. Room. There were descendants of said so, veterans. So. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. thank you. It, it was so, bigger than 50, let's say that. So, okay, well, they couldn't have all been veterans then. Um, uh, ragtag, that ragtag group. Anyhow, so that there's always been a divide, two divides, okay? A divide between Cuban Americans and the, 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 the Hispanics who come up from uh, Central and South America, particularly Mexico, um, they, the, the Cubans have uh, concentrated in Florida. They have a, a, a narrow, focused set of interests. They are also so. There's that one divide. And, and talking, of, I don't know that Cubans necessarily even want to be associated with trash talk about Hispanics elsewhere. They're saying, "Oh, that's them, and we're us." But what's what's also interesting about the Cubans is that they're of, of two minds about exactly how to handle uh, Cuba, Castro going forward. There are those who say, over our dead bodies, should we have any kind of open relationship? And there are others who say, folks, it's been 50 years. It might be time to think about uh, a wider opening, and it's Cubans who want to travel there. It's Cubans who want to, go, who want to send money uh, to, to cigar smokers and, and that family there. there, and then there's this handful of, of cigar smokers. Um, although I think they're in for a rude awakening when they discover that the quality of the Cubans uh, is not what it once was. Right. Here, 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 here. Cuban cigars. Here, here. Hate mail. Raisin. Carl Tubin. We talk about Florida, but the inter- one of the interesting things over the past several weeks. Is Texas and Utah? 
Yeah, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, while you're at the mic, while you're pulled up to the mic here, uh, Carl Truman, you're talking about a state that has not voted Democrat since LBJ. That's right. And this is traditionally a blood-red Republican state. How surprising is it that it's gotten within margin of error polling in Texas? Well, I think it's part <clears throat> Mr. Trump's super personality and how nice he is to everybody. And uh, I think he's just put off a lot of people in Texas. The, uh, <clears throat> uh, and, and I think that in Utah is, is different. But Texas, I think, has just alienated a lot of segments of the population there. And they're saying, who needs them? Well, that, Admiral Ken is a former resident of Texas. Let Thank me go you. to you. <laughs> is the changing demographics of Texas, the large expansion of the Hispanic population, the largely uh, progressive uh, population in places like San Antonio, Austin, even in Dallas even, does that have something to do with the fact that the polling has compressed? I, I think you hit the nail right on the head. I don't think that Texas will go blue. I do think it will stay red, but it won't. Is stay. it in fact a toss-up state? It, it is not a toss-up state. I don't believe so. Yeah. I still, I still believe that it will go red. I still don't believe that um, that there has been that much change in the dem- demographic and that much negative reaction to Trump's um, comments over the the last year or so. But I still think it will stay red. But all those things that you just cited are true. Rick Perry, uh, when he was uh, governor did an amazing job of bringing businesses from California, from all over the country into Texas, and you've seen a huge influx. Toyota's moved there. Kaiser Permanente's moved there. Um, uh, uh, and then you have the tech companies like yeah. Dell. Uh, HP has a large uh, They're building the battery factory for uh, the electric cars. Oh, uh, oh yeah. Tesla. Tesla. Yeah. I mean, you've got a huge, huge, That's huge, huge yeah. I know, but they're, they're, they're building, and they're building a data center there for one of the other larger companies. So there's been a huge influx of people in different mindsets in the Texas. However, I still think for this election, I still I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll put a hundred bucks on the table. Texas stays red. Alan, you agree with that, or is in fact Texas toss up right now? No, I, th- I think it stays red. But it, but the fact that the, poll, what the polls are showing what they what they are suggests that two years, four years, six years from now, that may um, not be the case. It, it may not be the case. It's right now. There's a, the Trump the Trump factor, which is a negative, but but the demographics are changing. There's some hot uh, centers of, of of business activity. There's a younger group coming uh, coming into Texas, uh, and and they aren't necessarily going to skew red over the longer term. It's kind of where, now. Is, where is Molly Ivins now that we need her? Molly <laughs> you know, Texas is uh, is changing. No doubt about it. It's changing, and I think that we're going to see it in the in the polling. It's going to be closer than you would normally expect this, this, from, the, from the historical perspective. Dan Lipner. Well, so, but that's one of the things with, 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 with the Trump factor and the uh, the 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 last that uh, Governor Abbott. I can't explain, so I'm just going to set him aside. But uh, Governors Perry and George W. Bush both did really good outreach to Latinos and, and the Tecanos in, in Texas. So it was actually a diverse coalition that elected both of them to the governorship. There is not much evidence of a similar kind of outreach from the Donalds. 
So yeah. it's like, what, what do you do with that? And the, the bigger question is, and this is Alan's point, what does that mean going forward? The Republicans in Texas that are in a horrible position of if they come out against Trump, their base goes insane against them. Or if they come out for Trump, they're alienating the voters two years, four years, six years from now. But, and by the way, it's Tejano. Tejano's is a platter that you get at uh, Chili's. So he's from Miami. Give me I know. I know. It's, it's sad. It's sad. I love it when he tries to get in touch with his inner Cubanness. So anyway, but, but but the other the other interesting thing, and Carl brought out was Utah, where there's a possibility, according to some polling that I've seen, that an independent, non-party affiliated candidate could actually win that state and throw the electoral college into some sort of tizzy. Is is that? Does that pose a problem for both parties right now, Congressman Now, I don't know. I mean, I don't know Texas. I don't like Texas. <laughs> well, there goes that. There goes that audience. Thanks, Now. If they leave, if they leave America, it's my yeah. I just got thrown out of the Admiral's cigar box. <laughs> you did. <laughs> I think that the whole thing is you told us that that many electoral electoral college votes that I think that would throw the whole thing into uh, into the House House representatives. But but does it pose a problem for somebody achieving 270, or are we already there, Alan Moore? I think we're already there. Um, and, and if if uh, if Texas is a toss-up, then other some of these other places are gone. So <laughs> that's uh, the truth. I, I, I'm not. I, I think it's way too much attention on Texas. If Texas should go, wow, that would be significant. But I think it would just mean that we were we we really were in a a a, a, a tidal wave election. Go ahead, Admiral Ken. So I want to uh, recall everyone's memory to a comment that was made here uh, at this table um, the uh, Tuesday after the Republican National Convention when Ted Cruz. Uh, declined to endorse Donald Trump. And I think there were some predictions that his time in politics were done. Ted Cruz is more popular in Texas now than he ever was before. Why did, Why is that? Because he stood up and said, you know what? I can't go there now. But didn't he shoot him? Hold, 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 hold on. Hold on. All right. So did, did, did he stick with it? No, he did not. He folded, quite frankly, one day too early. If he had it held on um, and not given the endorsement until after all the other uh, noise started coming out, the guards to uh, Trump's uh, behavior toward women, you probably wouldn't have even seen his endorsement then. But I will tell you right now, it, Texas is a very strange place, and I want to remind everybody, it is the only state in the union that used to be its own country, and they haven't forgotten that. Oh, Texas, good grief. No, no, like, a true federalist would point out that all the states used to be their own countries, if you want to go down this road. No. Um, here we go. Maybe, here we go. So maybe are you well, the federalist discussion after the election. Are you suggesting that there's a lot of bad hombres and? Uh, <laughs> But let me I think one Republican a year of doing that's enough. <laughs> oh, no, 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 excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. The way I did it was the way that Donald Trump intended to do it. What, what Donald Trump said was some bad hombres. Well, the hombres are guys, bad guys. Right. Hombre is not guys. Hombre is 
hunger. Yeah. Bad hunger. There's bad hunger in The kind breakfast. of hunger that sometimes occurs in a room where people are smoking a lot of weed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what bad hombres are. They aren't legalizing in Texas, though. <laughs> Good grief. We have fallen off the cliff. I was hoping not to bring up the third debate, but we are going to have to talk about that at some point. Uh, we might as well bring it up right now. Actually, you know what? We'll, we'll talk about that when we come back. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue talking about the latest in the presidential election. And, oh, my gosh, is she really on TV again? Yes. Wow. That is surprising. Uh, we'll fill you in on what we're seeing here. It's auditioning for Trump TV. Oh, good Lord. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, Shelley's Backroom has been hosting Backroom Politics for seven years. Seven years. It's still unbelievable we've been doing it that long. But make no mistake about it, Shelley's Backroom is one of a kind in Washington, D.C. Shelley's is a comfortable retreat for cigar aficionados and those who simply want to unwind. The casual but elegant space features soft lighting, cozy couches, and overstuffed chairs. Shelly's Backroom is a cigar-friendly establishment, but the state-of-the-art air purification system keeps the atmosphere comfortable for smokers and non-smokers alike. Sit back and enjoy yourself while chatting with friends or watching one of the eight high-definition TVs, or come by any Tuesday, enjoy your favorite cigar or one of the signature cocktails, and watch how Backroom Politics is made. Convenient to public transportation and the sites of the nation's capital, Shelley's is easily dividable to accommodate intimate gatherings or large-scale special events. Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob says, it's the place to be. Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We're going to continue talking about the latest in the presidential election. That is, in case you haven't seen, two weeks away. And what we were talking about before the break, there's been a Katrina Pearson sighting on CNN, which we were all kind of like, huh? So that's what we were talking about before. Let's talk a little bit right now uh, about uh, the Hillary camp. Dan Lipner... The Democrats have a horrible tendency of taking victory laps way too soon. Is Hillary taking a victory lap right now? No. She's uh, not. No. I, in spite of the Saturday Night Live skits, uh, <laughs> the, 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 my, my personal favorite being the, the one word. Oh, Donald Trump was being complimented for how generous he was for giving me the election last week. <laughs> um <laughs> But that being said, no, the, the, the Hillary campaign is being remarkably controlled in paying attention to 
what is still required to win, sending staffers out to Utah when poll numbers suggest that it is winnable or at least keeping it out of Trump camp. They sent six staffers to Utah, which is amazing to me. And by the way, I was available. You could have sent me. <laughs> <laughs> Shameless plug on monster.com today. But, 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 that, but, but that said, but also paying attention to, and this is something that much to my chagrin for the seven and three quarter years of Barack Obama's presidency, they're also paying attention to down ballot races, which I have not seen in the totality of Obama being the top of the ticket. It's great that the, they're actually paying attention to what else is going on and knowing what you actually will need to do to govern and, and even to some extent reaching out to moderates so you can actually not just take office, but actually get a coalition that is governable, which Obama did but, not but do. But Carl Tubin, when we see Hillary on the stump, particularly like today in Florida, she was pushing down ballot candidates, Patrick Murphy for Senate, uh, several key Democratic races in Florida. That to me seems like, oh, I've got this, but we still got to elect Patrick Murphy and the rest of the Democratic slate. That doesn't seem like a victory lap to you? No, I don't think so. And I think the thing is, at this point, <clears throat> they feel that we're in a very, very good position. So therefore, she's working on the down uh, part, the down races. Also, she has taken a substantial amount of money and put them into different states where she thinks it really would, would be helpful. Indiana, for example. Right. But, but, but Alan Moore, do you agree with that, that she's not, in fact, taking a victory lap right now? No, I don't think she's taking a victory lap. I think she's taking advantage of the situation right now, looking at the polls, and also being responsive to the party, saying, for God's sakes, you've raised $1.1 billion that for super PAC spending and your own spending. We've got $400 million more than, than Trump does. Um, and 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 uh, let's use some of that money, some of that time, some of that effort to try to improve the situation in the Congress, and who knows, maybe even um, take control of the Senate, which is still out there as a possible. I don't think the House is that really in play, but it could be. You don't know. So, you know, I think for her to say, elect me and give me a team I can work with, is not. Is not they are talking about 18 to 24 seats in the house being picked up by Democrats. Not the 30 plus will need to win, but that makes the majority in the house a different. All right, hold on, hold on, Congressman Al first. The the question is, is she you know taking a victory lap? No, when she's speaking for these people, she's on national television, uh, she is leading the rallies. She's very high profile, even though she's supporting other candidates. So I, I think she's doing both, uh, and uh, we'll see if it works. Bob Hines? I think she's doing it very well. I think she's doing exactly what she ought to be doing, given her status in the, in, in the, in the voters. Does, the, the, is she truly bringing the party back together in a way that has been lost on the Republicans? Uh, I hadn't thought about it in quite that way, but yes, I think she's doing a damn good job. Carl Tubin, you're shaking your head yes. Yes, I think so. I think I think that she has, you know, her whole theme of uh, stronger together 
Uh, I think first was aimed at the Democrats. That was a big thing at the convention. That's where it all started at the convention. <clears throat> and I think that people are generally uh, happy with, with what she's doing, what she's done. She's made a few stumbles along the way, but Trump has made more, thank God. Yeah. Alan Moore, look, people have not liked Hillary Clinton. They still don't like Hillary Clinton. They, there are some who do, obviously, some who love her and have for a long time. But if, if, that weren't a, if people's dislike for her wasn't such a big problem, this thing would have been sewed up months ago. Um, so the, the events seem to be turning in her direction. Does it help when she's out there, the person who, who generally grates on a lot of Democrats, and uh, including a lot of progressives who are looking at these emails and the John Podesta file and realizing how dismissive some of these senior thinkers were about, uh, uh, about, the, about Bernie, his people, his movement. Um, there's, there's not a lot of love there. So in terms of bringing everything together, I would say she's trying to help some of these other candidates whether, it, but bringing the party together, it's way too premature. You do that, you do that later, or you try to. And uh, I don't know how much it helps if if what we're seeing in in a particularly unusual this year is a lot of people, including a lot of Republicans. Colin Powell, a good example. Today he said, "I'm voting for Clinton." Um, he, he lives in Virginia. There's no Senate race up right now, but I'm guessing that. Colin Powell is not saying I endorse all Democrats. He's saying I'm talking about commander in chief. She's by far the better choice. I'm, I'm going with her. But lots of Republicans are going to vote for uh, Hillary Clinton, and it doesn't mean they're going to vote for a Democrat down ballot. Admiral Ken, I don't believe she's doing a victory lap, but I think at the end of the day she's, being, she's looking at what's going to happen if she wins in a very pragmatic manner. So Dan touched on it. In order for the House to switch over, the Democrats have to pick up uh, somewhere right around 30 seats. That's probably not going to happen. But for the Senate, they're only talking about four. Yeah. Right. They're only talking about four. And if you go back and you look at the polls of the, of the, uh, of the approval polls of, the, of, of, uh, of Congress over the last eight to ten years, abysmally low. She, if she becomes president, she can't afford to go into a second-term election process with that kind of record. She's going to have to pass something. That's why she's quietly reaching out talking to Republicans who are not up for office who might be able to uh, to work with her once she becomes president. Dan Lipner. I think very pragmatic. And, and it's worth noting, when her, when Hillary was in, in the Senate, she was well well regarded by her Republican colleagues. She she wasn't the person who, would, who tried to hog the cameras like many uh, people, I won't even say people in the Senate, many people in office try to do. I actually distinctly remember seeing her coming out of a hearing meeting and then seeing the cameras out there and seeing the cameras deliberately holding back so senators more senior to her would be the ones quoted for comment. And that kind of stuff got noticed by her colleagues, in addition to actually doing her homework, being there for votes, being aware of the full extent of the issues that were there. And her Republican colleagues, John McCain included, spoke highly of that skill. And I suspect her, her as her presidency will reflect that same kind of movement. Carl Tubin? I think that the words were out of my mouth, but in truth, uh, Hillary was able to reach across the aisle and work with Republicans, even reach across to the House 
to get support for different things that she wanted. And uh, her her uh, her child her um, uh, the insurance that she got for children was done it in that way. So. <laughs> She played a small marginal role on this chip. She didn't get the bill, get the program. Yeah, no doubt about it. She and Ted Cruz will not be taking tea at the Willard. Yeah, that's that's true. That, that's Ted probably true. Well, <laughs> Ted Cruz doesn't take tea at the Willard with Mitch McConnell either, so let's just... Right. <laughs> Some control over it. That that is true. Kudos to Chris Wallace. Yeah. He, he did a, he did yeah, a, he did a good job. job. He did a good job, and and both candidates were a little difficult. Not surprisingly, Donald was the most difficult. But Hillary a few times didn't shut up when he asked her to. Alan Moore, what surprised you about the third debate? That <laughs> that although Trump took the bait a little. He didn't just uh, totally uh, dive to try to consume all the chum that she threw into the water. Now, there is such a low bar that we set for Donald Trump that when he is even half controlled and half civil, we say, oh, listen to him. He he kind of did the job. But his problem is even when he he makes a point, I remember there was one point that, that, that got my attention. This was the first a debate in which the Clinton Foundation was came up because he had completely failed to take advantage in the first two debates to even raise it. A question came from the moderator about the Clinton about the Clinton Foundation of all things, and she almost immediately pivoted from his legitimate question about this cozy relationship between donors and the State Department to talk about WikiLeaks and how it was the Russians who had come forth with this information. Trump, to my, initially to my, my surprise, said, whoa, did you see that? How, she, how, how smoothly she pivoted from the real question to turn to the Russians um, and WikiLeaks. And I thought, he's going to go back now. To, how about answering the question? Right. But no, then it's now with regard to the Russians. He, we don't know it's the Russian people. It was like, he, he's so, you're a puppet. So yeah, well, I'm, yeah. I'm a puppet. You're a puppet. Um, Pinocchio's a puppet. So, 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 it was like he made the right point, and then he completely blew it and took the bait to talk about about uh, Putin um, and the Russians, and and who was the source of the WikiLeaks, and 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 we never heard any more about the Clinton Foundation. And, and notwithstanding the good work that that foundation does that I have talked about time and again, they were trying to have their cake and eat it too and have these sweetheart arrangements with, with donor governments um, and access not only to Secretary Clinton when she was at the department, but to senior members of the State Department, notwithstanding 
an agreement to have uh, strict uh, barriers uh, to avoid conflicts of interest, potential conflicts, which they never did. It really it, it, it besmirched the good work of the foundation. It besmirched her and her husband. Um, and, uh, and Donald Trump has made almost no use of it right. because he's so easily diverted. So, Admiral Ken, one of, the, one of the biggest faults that we heard about Donald Trump, because we talked about Hillary not really doing well, in addressing the WikiLeaks emails and the, uh, the Clinton Foundation issue, one of the big faults that we heard on our policy side was his complete inability to either not understand or try to prepare on issues regarding foreign policy. His address to the Russians of, we don't know the Russians did the hacking. Well, if you talk to the intelligence community, they'll tell you. Which you get classified briefings now. Yeah, which is surprising. <laughs> but if you talk to the if you talk to the intel community, they say the Russians talking about Syria and the Middle East was a complete disaster. How does the Republican Party, who are traditionally hawkish, look at Donald Trump as being able to grasp the serious issues of? Um, Hello? Yeah, we're still on. So how do, how do we deal with Goodbye. the issue? Yeah, no kidding. You know, my wife lost us at 39 minutes. Oh, that may be her, that may be her internet connection. Uh, but how, again, going back, how, how does the Republicans deal with the national security question with Trump? I don't know. I, you know, this whole thing has just been one surprising week after another. Um, you know, going back to the the, the, the the previous question, you know, what surprised me about the debate, which is the same thing that surprised me about most of them, is how Donald Trump can come in, get asked a question, and never answer it. Uh, and when he does answer a question, he answers it so poorly that you you as you as uh, you know, someone who pays attention to these things only can sit back, scratch your head, and go, really? I mean, holy cow! How do we get how do we get here? So the party, I think, you know, I think quite frankly, after this is over, um, my hope is that whoever emerges as the uh, the chairman, and I'm I'm thinking we're probably gonna get a new one, um, basically says, okay, kids, we gotta we gotta start we gotta build this thing from from uh, from the ground up again. Go ahead, Carl Tubin. First of all, as far as answering questions, um, I think there was one part of the debate where uh, they talked about getting ready, and Hillary said that, uh, that one thing that I do is preparation, and and I think he doesn't he doesn't do that. He doesn't know things about foreign policy and and all the different issues that that come with all the different parts of the world and the countries that that we have to interact with, and he really didn't try. To, uh, to, to learn these things over the whole period of the campaign. Congressman Al. I think the Republican Party, which was the question, uh, you know, what do they do, <clears throat> depends on if he wins, they are in really bad, bad shape. The whole country's in bad shape. <laughs> yeah, we're all the country's in bad shape. If he, if he loses, which it looks like he will do, their best tactic, I think, is to ignore him 
is to just move on and, uh, and, and get into a Donald Who uh, kind of uh, situation and move ahead. Hopefully, they'll be able to, we will be able to do that. But the problem is Donald Trump isn't the root cause of the problem. He's a symptom of the problem. When Sean Hannity got referenced in the first debate, by the way, more than any other policy person or person of substance, it was a remarkable thing. And Sean Hannity, I'm trying to remember the the bald talk show, uh, not Rush Limbaugh, there's another guy out there who displays Rush Limbaugh, and the kind of nonsense that thoughtful Republicans, remove Democrats from the conversation entirely, that thoughtful Republicans have to deal with the kinds of craziness. What do you do? I mean, we've joked around the table about the, the kind of nonsense that's out there, but that nonsense now has a bullhorn that is fanned with flames that you, that you can't fully imagine and deal with. So what do you do unless you have the entire Republican intelligentsia simultaneously say, no, this is wrong. These are the facts. These are what the real issues. Stop fighting these fake battles. These are the real ones we need your help with. And how, but the question is, how do you get from here to there? One Congressman Al. One of the things that we can blame, the Republicans can blame, they won't, uh, Ronald Reagan for was elimination of the Fairness Doctrine. Uh, the Fairness Doctrine was mis it was not understood well and it was not uh, it, it was it was seen as a thing that uh, was impeding free speech in fact the, the, the fairness doctrine didn't do that at all and it would have made uh, Rush Limbaugh and others have to play the game differently it, would, it wouldn't have taken them off the air but it would have meant that the stations carrying would have had to devote some time to uh, balancing out the whole thing. And that would have been, strangely enough, to the advantage of the Republican Party. It would have been to the advantage of the Democratic Party as well, but it sure would have helped the Republicans. I'm Uh, confused, Al. How would the Fairness fairness Doctrine affect cable news? It wouldn't affect cable news. Right. I mean, the Fairness Doctrine was about the airwaves, which we gave to uh, broadcasters, and and increasingly we relied less and less on over-the-air broadcasting, which used this public uh, asset of the airwaves, and we moved towards towards cable. Campaign figured out how to get 
more people from point A to point B on election day. And apparently it Trump's done the same thing. thing. And apparently Trump's done the same thing. In the primaries, a different... To our, to our chagrin. No, 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 no but... A different kind of motivating factor. The right. numbers have suggested that none of the Trump voters are new voters. They're just new primary voters. There are people who traditionally we're, we're voted getting, anyway. We're getting way into the weeds on this on this fairness doctrine. I, I, I agree. Well, we try. I, I have to try and bring this back. In. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Carl, do the name of Congressman now. Daniel is is wrong on one factor. In 1960. The Kennedys had a ground game uh, that was very, very good and very strong, plus registration, and that's what won him the election. Now, all right, Congressman Al? I, I just wanted to, to make one last comment about the Fairness Doctrine. Alan is absolutely yeah. right that uh, the restoration of the Fairness Doctrine would not solve all the problems because of, of cable television. <clears throat> but it would have done considerable amounts to the people that listen to Rush Limbaugh and all of those on the radio. And it would have begun to uh, to, to provide some balance in the overall company, to which I think the, uh, the cable people would have to pay some attention to because they would be so very different. Okay. okay. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break here. The Constitution be down. <laughs> Now that we are deep in the weeds, in the roots of the weeds, we're going to come back out for a oh, second. The weeds are a lot deeper than that. Oh, okay, well, that, that sounds like a good after-election conversation, because God knows we'll be doing a postmortem on that. But we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the other big breaking news coming out of Washington today, and that is the brick that was dropped on the heads of the Democrats regarding Obamacare. We're going to talk about that here in about two minutes. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We will be back in two, three minutes. Stay with us. You know, everybody thinks of Shelley's Backroom as a cigar spot in Washington, D.C. You know what the reality is? It is the cigar spot in D.C. Where else can you grab a great cocktail made by world-renowned bartenders? Or where else are you going to get the finest cigar list of any restaurant in all of Washington, D.C.? And then the great food. You come for the food. It can be the campfire wings. One pound of roasted, not fried, well-seasoned, marinated jumbo chicken wings with choices of Shelly's honey mustard or blue cheese or ranch dressing. These are award-winning wings. That's why you come to Shelly's. It's the whole package. You can drink, you can smoke, have great conversations with your friends, and have a great food menu. Shelly's Back Room. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. You know what? It is the place to be.
is backroom politics. And we're back here live in Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, we're going to talk about a piece of breaking news that came out earlier today uh, here in Washington. It was announced that uh, Obamacare has an issue. That issue is it is going to cost you at least 20% on average, to be in the Obamacare health care system. And depending some, on where you are. Depending on where you are. In some instances, like the state of Arizona, the benchmark silver Obamacare plan is going up 116%, which has got everybody in the Obama administration just going, oh, you're killing us. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, it's actually 145%. The, the, the PowerPoint. Oh, oh, okay. Excuse me, <laughs> Mr. Kaiser. Hey, but 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 really, this poses a big problem, Congressman Al, for the Obama administration as far as validating the future of Obamacare in total. Well, do you do you really think that uh, the new president and the Congress are going to let that stand? But how do you fix that then, they, Congressman Al? I can't sit here and tell you how to fix it. What I'm saying is we got a Congress to do that, and I cannot see the Congress letting these extreme increases continue. They're going to they're going to beat the hell out of uh, Obamacare in the debates, and they're going to try and find a solution to it that the Democrats, if they're smart, will assist in doing. But Dan Lipner, I mean. You're, we're already talking about what many in America feel is a flawed health care program. Many in America feel like, hey, it wasn't that broken. Why just screw with it? And now they're seeing premiums rise again. And to put insult to injury, the administration came out this afternoon and said, oh, yeah, we're going to see more increases next year. What is causing the increase? Okay, well, so there are a couple of things at play here. So it's worth noting, A, there are always increases, and there were increases in excess of inflation for the last 30 years prior to Obamacare. This was true. The facts matter. As far as the, the, what, what Obamacare did and the changes, the previous two years after the individual mandate went in, and I will point out, I don't know how many people around this table, but I am part of Obamacare. I ensure through... Uh, the healthcare.gov. That's where I get my health insurance. So previously, the health insurance rates went up in the first year, 4%, second year, 7%. This year is now an outlier at 2% at a minimum. So the the question is why? And this is, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, they they produced a study on this and we're trying to come up with explanations. The reason that the premiums have been driven up are uh, losses and underpricing. The, the sticker for Obamacare, uh, less than expected uh, for the risk pool. So more sick people got involved and were, take, and were making use of the health insurance that was not properly accounted for, which also plays into the inadequate premium. The phasing out of reinsurance payments, which I will actually defer to, to Alan to, to speak to, I'm not an expert on that, and the last 
item on that is the underlying medical prices uh, that account for 3 to 9%, which are also going, going up in excess of overall inflation. So those are part of the issues at play. But also worth noting, it's not driving all insurance out of play. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's people, Obamacare. No, no. I mean, people, I mean, but, it, but it's also worth noting, people who get their insurance from their employer, that isn't the same problem. But, that, and, but that's only 60% of the American population. 40% of the American population still has to rely on Obamacare to get their mandated health care coverage. I, 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 well, no, you still need to exclude for, and this is number I also looked up in the process, that the 72, 72% of consumers on healthcare.com, their premiums will be less than $75 a month. So these are the, the, the truly low-income folks. The people who are getting squeezed are people like me, the people it, it actually in the middle-income that middle world where okay, there is no substance. So, I mean, there is there is a question at play here, but the pricing it has always been for health insurance, as is all insurance. But, but the wait a minute, wait a minute, it's still of a, of a risk. It, wait, 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 Alan Moore, from a Republican side, when you see this news coming out, and and, and this is something that directly affects forty percent of Americans and their budget every month. How does Obamacare come out and say this is wildly successful? We got health care coverage for all. Okay, I, I question the forty percent number, but we—that's according to NBC. It just seems high, but but anyway, what what, 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 what that what that includes is people who are on Medicaid, which was part of Obamacare, and many states expanded their Medicaid coverage, and a fair number of and a fair number of states did not expand their Medicaid coverage. But in terms of the lower income people who for the first time bought insurance via the, the exchanges, most of them get a subsidy. They can get a subsidy of nearly 100% of the cost or a very modest amount of cost. Dan is in this group that, they, that that's, that's, that's a much narrower slice uh, the group that President Bill Clinton just a couple of weeks ago said, we've got this system now that provides coverage at the bottom, wealthier people and people through their jobs get pretty good coverage, and then we've got these people sort of in the middle, middle income who are struggling to, to, to who don't quali- whose income is too high to qualify for subsidies, who are, who are, who are having to swallow these huge increases. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen. And it was that phrase that then became political, that even even Bill Clinton describes Obamacare as the craziest thing you've ever seen. So it's important to understand that the impact on individuals is going to vary all over the place. The poorer you are, if you're buying through the system, the more of a subsidy you're going to get. Now, (laughs) who pays the subsidy? Oh, yeah. Oh, who's going to worry about the subsidy? Tax credits. Let tax credits do it. Then we don't have to pay. Sorry, folks. The 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 subsidy, the annual subsidy, the annual cost of Obamacare, even with all these increases, is currently in the neighborhood of one hundred billion dollars. 
Which adds to our deficit. No, it pays for itself. That's not correct. Wait, 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 wait. How do you come up with so, so Obamacare? No, no. I, wait, wait, the le- the wait, wait, hold on. Hold on. No, 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 no. The legis- the le- wait, wait. Stop, stop, stop. You can't I'm say add to deficit. The, the, the legislation as a bulk item where there are both costs and benefits as well as taxes that, that when you produce a piece of legislation, we have people who have been legislators at this table. When you choose to when you choose to pass something, you can do it in an unfunded method yeah. and just say this is going to be a thing, or you can actually choose to raise taxes or or read or readjust spending. Are you, Obamacare does not add to the deficit. That is absolutely incorrect. Where, well, where actually, did you get actually, the actually, wait, wait. Sorry, Dan. Um, when it it was designed to pay for itself through some very significant taxes on upper income folks on medical devices, on people who get very sweet, expensive, so-called Cadillac health plans. There was a package of massive taxes that was associated with the passage of Obamacare. Now, two things have occurred. One, it's costing more than we thought. So it's not accurate to say it's fully fully paid for. And it's and, and and also the the so-called medical device tax I think was modified and there's an enormous political push to modify this punitive tax on the really super uh, generous plans that that lots of unions have bargained for over the years and that and that some wealthier companies with with a wealthy cohort so it doesn't it's not a hundred billion addition to the deficit. Having said that, you know, it's not like when you increase taxes by $100 billion that there aren't some, some other uh, ne- negative uh, side effects of that. But it's also not accurate to say anymore that it fully pays for itself because clearly it doesn't, which is why the Congress needs to get involved, as Al said, and, and join in to figure out, okay, we're not going to we're, we're much as people talk about replace uh, repeal and replace there. Nobody knows what we're going to replace with. We're not going to repeal it fully, but we're going to clearly have to make changes to it because we're on a path that's not sustainable. Right. Congressman Al, I think the way that we arrived at this plan it goes a long way to explain its problems. <clears throat> there was no bipartisan effort on this at all uh and it got it got uh, the democrats and the president had to make deals that they probably wouldn't have otherwise made in order to get it through uh and if in fact that's as good as we can do god help us when we start dealing with entitlements but, but there's going to just just a moment there's going to there's going to have to be some cooperation bipartisan cooperation on these things because they all carry with them costs. And, uh, but here's my question, though, is when, you know, I hear what you're saying, Alan, but when we talk about, you know, it, one, it doesn't pay for itself. We know that. Dan obviously came in here on a pink unicorn today. No, no, that, that was because that, you, you, we just had a discussion on the facts, and I will concede Alan's statement as far as the parts of Obamacare that were repealed or adjusted and because of the political pressure. But who but, pays but that, Dan? A, 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 Dan, who pays a, that? A pink unicorn is not just even remotely truthful as 
far as the fact. Yes, I will actually concede everything that Alan actually said, that while it came in paying for itself, there were adjustments along the line in addition to the costs that were unexpected. But a blowing a giant but hole in the deficit is not true. It is simply not true. Even the GAO has said that this is not fully fundable onto itself. It is not offset spending. Cite it. Huh? Cite it. Oh, I'm not, okay. I'm not going to do that. I can still got a monitor. You look up the CBO instead of GAO. C- CBO. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. CBO. I'm sorry. Thank you. But, but again, I go back to, and this is open for everybody at the table, is the fact that you still have an impact on spending that the government has to pay out to sustain Obamacare. That goes towards deficit that we cannot continue to sustain. Is that inaccurate? That is a much larger question than this particular point. No, this goes to the heart of Obamacare, though, Dan. No, it no. doesn't go to the heart of Obamacare. It goes to the heart of the fact that you have a government that, that provides more than the public wants to pay for. And that's across the board. You can't lay this all at the feet of Obamacare. Now. And when you get to the entitlements, as we're going to have to do, we're going to have to find a better way of handling it than we did uh, on Obamacare. Well, let me, well, let me, let me ask this question. Obamacare is now an entitlement. Is it? Is it Absolutely in fact it part is. of, of entitlement? Of course it is. Non-discretionary spending. It, uh, parts of it, yes, absolutely, 100%. Some of it requires appropriations. Some of it is tax credits that you get no matter what. And so you, you, you look at the new revised numbers for Obamacare of what – you know, what the difference is between the revenues we attempted to create and adjustments thereto and the and the cost, both in dollar outlays and in tax credits, and you suddenly realize there's a growing gap. Um, but if you're looking at the entire government and entitlements, it, it is a new, and parts of it are a new entitlement. I, 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 I agree with that. <laughs> and it's going to get lumped in with all the problems that come along with entitlements. If, and, and I don't know of a solution to the entitlement problem that isn't going to raise some taxes and cost some money. Right. And, and it's not going to be popular. And it's going to, if it's going to be done sensibly, instead of coming up with something that's got holes all over it, like this apparently does, you're going to have to have some bipartisan, cooperative consensus building in the Congress. God help us. If we can get it. If we can get it. See, no, and, and that's absolutely right. But in, in the list of entitlements, uh, separating them out matters. So Social Security is a comparatively mechanically easy entitlement fix. Uh, looking back at the last fix result, or major fix for Social Security, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan came up with a compromise, uh, both uh, de- uh, delaying, and Alan can probably think this better, but the cutting outlays and, and increasing funding. If you raise the cap on the contributions to Social Security and you raise the retirement age, it's a relative mechanically, even politically hard, but mechanically an easy fix. Medicare, different entitlement, which, by the way, Obamacare does touch on in some parts. You actually try to control costs of actual health care, which is worth noting, a staggering 
staggeringly large percentage of the economy a socialist program. Well, then if you but, want to dig in the weeds, no, 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 wait, wait, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. If you want to dig in the weeds, then you're also talking about the impact that it has on veterans and the VA funding, the mandate that all veterans have to go through VA to get their health care coverage, if eligible, to offset Obamacare. But that's all budgetary money that goes into VA to cover that, and that's additional deficit spending there. Well, VA is, I mean, by most metrics, absent the scandals and the people getting the issues with people gaining access to VA, most data suggests VA is far more efficient at providing health care than any of the health in the country. But it still costs taxpayers money. Of course it costs money. So do wars, so do bombers. All these things cost money. You can't... Pick and choose and pretend that these other things come are fairy dust that come out of nowhere. Yes, if you want a government and pay the price for living in a civilized society, yes, these damn things cost money. <laughs> Alan Moore, why, why hasn't anybody in the Republican Party gone back and looked at the 1972 legislation, the Nixon-Kennedy health care bill, that largely would have been, by all accounts, somewhat more successful than what Obamacare has become, why doesn't the Republican Party put that up as a possible model? There's probably some ideas from the 1800s that are worth looking at, too. In 1972? Are you kidding me? No, 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 no. The whole world we has changed. everything. The whole world has changed. What, what, the, the real question now is we've got large numbers of people who rely on insurance purchased through Government exchanges, the federal the federal exchange is growing and growing. Fewer and fewer states are hanging on to their own individual exchanges. People like Dan, um, who who couldn't get a decent deal on insurance, um, now can at least get uh, have guaranteed access to insurance. They got to pay a pretty penny for it, but you know something? That's what the thing costs. That's the the problem there. Then you have people. That, that, are, that are also dependent on the federal exchange that we're all very sympathetic to, the people who have pre-existing conditions, or their kids did. They couldn't buy insurance at any price. No one would sell them insurance. Just about everybody who was looking at these issues of health coverage said, we need to get access to insurance for those people. And then the... How do you make this stuff affordable? So you have to subsidize it. Those were the those were the core issues that a bipartisan group was looking at once upon a time, until the Senate suddenly got its 60th vote when Al Franken became a member of the Senate, and the Senate and the House just said, "To hell with Republicans! Sorry, you members of the Finance Committee who are working in good faith across the aisle trying to come up with a common plan. Nope, we're going to do our own thing." Then it was a different kind of negotiation. How do we keep all 60 together? And keep the house involved in it, and it set a very, very bad example. We got carried away with ourselves. We passed some very significant so taxes. Let me ask this question: When, when we see that the, the the silver the silver package, which is largely looked at as the affordable benchmark of Obamacare, when the premiums are going up, there are some that are looking at it that are saying, not only is there the possibility that the premiums are going to go have to go up, but you're also looking at deductibles having to go up from anywhere from 500 up to as much as 2,500 deductibles. Look, most people can people afford that? No, they can't. 
and most people, or they don't want to, they don't think they can. They're most not, Americans can't afford a $400, $400 surprise bill. This is data that came out about six months ago. Most Americans cannot afford, and this, is, by the way, includes available credit. A four hundred dollar emergency expenditure, regardless of health. But how does somebody living on a fixed income of forty five thousand dollars a year with two children in Des Moines, Iowa, justify or find the twenty four or twenty five hundred dollar deductible it takes to have affordable, accordingly affordable health care? Under Obamacare. Bernie Sanders would be glad to sign you up, Justin, if that's what you're talking about as far as the overall economy. It's what, not. I mean, what, is you your, what is your solution? Yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't criticize Obamacare on the one hand for costing too much for individuals and on the other hand, not being affordable. Exactly. This is the challenge that we're wrestling with. And one, exactly. of, the, one of the biggest problems that Obamacare has faced is that all the younger healthier people that they were trying to force into the system, the so-called mandate, have decided, screw it, we would rather pay the penalty, which is now up to the maximum penalty level, which is 3% of your salary is the penalty for which you get no care, but you pay that penalty. Oh, except if you're sick, you can still go to the emergency room and you still have to get served. So it, th- there were flaws in the structure here. The, if we talk about a mandate, but many, many, many young people are saying, I'm not going to spend the, the thousands it takes. I'm going to roll the dice. I'll pay the penalty, and I'll use my extra money for rent, for my car, for marijuana. Thursday night fun, <laughs> for That's some marijuana. Marijuana. Oh, That's right. Right. But, 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 but we One thing to add on to that. That the uninsured rate in the country has dropped to 10%. That is not an insignificant thing. If you're saying Obamacare is a failure, that is. I didn't one say thing. it was a failure. But, but I mean, the fact that the, um, the percentage of Americans is down, uh, uninsured uh, Americans is down 10, down, down to 10% is a real thing. It's and, a real and, thing. And, 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 and bankruptcy is related to the records show that if you're willing to spend $100 billion, you get something. Right, that's true. Admiral Ken, you I, were shaking your head. I've said it here before, and the last five minutes or so, I think, has added ample evidence to this. The biggest problem with Obamacare, in addition to the fact that it was passed in midnight uh, and rammed down the throats of, uh, uh, of, of the country, is that it took a look at and it tried to control one portion of a very complicated supply chain. It's sick. It didn't do anything on, on, the, on the price of medications. It didn't do anything about malpractice. It didn't do anything about that stuff. And so when you try to squeeze just one, one part of an equation, guess what? Other things are going to pop up. You but, can't but, figure but out. Here's my problem with the EPEN, for example. But here's my problem with all this. When, when, and it goes to Alan's point is if you're a 25-year-old, that says I'll pay three percent in penalty for not having coverage, and then you break your collarbone. You go to the ER. You have to be treated. If by chance they don't come after you and try to get the bill, which they will, the hospital that treated you still has the ability to go back to Medicare, Medicaid, and get that money back from HHS, which is still tax money out the door, which does not 
fix the problem of Obamacare. Agreed. 100%. How do you fix the problem? That is the hundred billion dollar question. It sounds like you're right suggesting health care should be free, which no, 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 First of all, what Alan said about Obamacare being an entitlement is absolutely accurate. It adds to the entitlement problem, which contains in it all of the things we've been talking about, all of the issues that uh, that Justin has been raising. Uh, it's going to be very, very difficult to deal not just with Obamacare, <laughs> but with all of the entitlements. And they're not going to be popular. And if the Congress can't figure out a way to work out a, a way of compromising on these things so that everybody, everybody of every party has got a little bit of the blame to deal with, one, if, if we can't do that, we're never going to solve the entitlement one, problem. One aspect, one aspect, oh, I'm sorry, Congressman, just we can't solve it for any of the entitlements, including Obamacare. But I will tell you right now that one of the options that people have talked about with entitlements as, as it relates to Social Security is means testing. I don't think that doing means testing across the board for all entitlements is a necessarily bad thing. If you care already have means testing, as the example of me being the example, I pay. I am putting the bill for what I get. I am by definition means tested out of the subsidies. I mean, you're out. You you don't get any tax break at all for having Obamacare. Zero. Zero. He, uh, he Alan Moore. He gets no special tax break. Right. He is able to to deduct his. Premiums uh, and premiums. And, no, 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 no. O- only, only when I'm working as a contractor. If I am a, if I am a, a salaried employee that does not receive health care from my employer, there is no deduction there. As a contractor, I'm allowed to write that off as basically I'm running my own business and providing health care for my one employee being me. Those are different things. Well, all I'm saying is that there have been some efforts to try to treat people who have to buy their own insurance. Um, some of our retirees, some of our younger people, try to treat them the same as if they were employees. There's, there's a, an effort to do that. I don't know the details of how, that, how much they've succeeded, right. but, but he doesn't get any, he, you know, he doesn't get a special subsidy. But he can exhaust. Except, except to the fact that now he's able to buy insurance in a large pool that was created for this purpose, um, and there's there's arguable, arguably some you know some some built-in subsidies for the sick people in that pool, of which he's not one of them. Right, but, no, no, but, but, but he's actually. But, but, but I'm helping to support them. He's actually, okay, he's actually paying. All right, but but you think it's the way all people if, are insured. Right, but if you do get sick, you can deduct your deductible off your tax break. You can do- only if I act. No, this is the craziness of things, and this is a holdover from George W. Bush. I, I now have a health savings account, which I was remiss in, in not starting earlier. The health savings account, which I find somewhat insane, 
that I am paying a bank to hold money that I've set aside pre-taxes. By the way, it costs me money to set that aside to then remove that to, to remove that from my overall tax bill, but with the added bonus that I have this money set aside that I can use exclusively for healthcare. This intermediary seems like an insane portion of it that at mine happens to be Bank of America, which I'm sure they are happy to take but, their But am I wrong when I say that you can deduct the deductible, whether it's five hundred or twenty five hundred from your taxes, you can also deduct the cost that you pay every month into Obamacare. That was one of the conditions. No, of no, no, that is, that is incorrect. He just, he just addressed that. He, he addressed the second part of your question. Yes, right. The, the first part of your question is 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 different. In order to be able to, to, to deduct all of your health spending, which you can do, which, which includes a deductible, which which includes everything you pay, no matter who you are, if you don't, you're not able to to deduct it otherwise. It only works for you if you are, one, itemizing your deductions, and two, you only get to deduct health spending to the extent it exceeds 10% of your adjusted gross income. Right. So for most people, there's no, de- no extra deduction. If you're really sick and it's really expensive, you, exceed, you, you hit that 10% uh, ceiling, and then you're able to deduct that but if you're but if you're making amount. if you're making thirty five thousand a year, and you hit a thirty five hundred dollar deductible, which could be a possibility downstream, yep. you're we're gonna lose tax money off of that. No, but but, well, but, but you're if you if, if you if but, you itemize, which you probably don't if your income's thirty five thousand. That's true. Unless you have a massive uh, health expenditure. Yeah, you're closely you earned income tax else. credit when you're making thirty five thousand dollars a year. True. No, but 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 it's still what. What you are saying is now you're now you're you're mixing apples and oranges here. If you're talking about the premiums, you're making thirty-five thousand dollars a year. You're also getting a subsidy to pay for it, which comes back to, by the way, the premiums that I'm paying are helping to pay for. All right, yeah. Carl Tubin. Point I wanted to make is, uh, Alan said when when Nixon, I guess, introduced the bill, or when Nixon was thinking no, about I, the bill. No, I I, I said, said it. Right. Okay. Yeah, <clears throat> only you and Justin will know what occurred in '72. Yeah. <laughs> Kennedy, <laughs> you do. Kennedy, Kennedy in, his, uh, in his biography admitted that he should have he should have worked with Nixon on a health care situation at that time because he would have they would have been able to have health care in 1972 and add to it as they would. Going forward. Yeah, the only reason why I bring that up is it was in the State of the Union address that year by Nixon saying, now is the time for all Americans to receive sustainable health care. That, I mean, that, that's fact. I mean, Congressman Al, your point. Well, my point doesn't relate to mine. I'm just, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I got that. My point is that this is exactly what's been going on in Congress. I wish that we, we, we are we are a, 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 a mini representative of the Congress that can't that can't get together to welcome the dawn. <laughs> and and welcome what we're going to, I have two things come to my mind. Uh, one is that Several years ago, I can't remember when, an independent 
bipartisan commission was put together to fix Social Security. And they put on it people who were on every side of the issue. 1982. Alan Greenspan commission. Okay. And and Claude Claude Pepper, Pepper. who had spent his life defending, uh, defending Social Security, was one of the members. And they finally came out with something that ev- that all of them, including Claude Pepper, could support. And this was truly bipartisan. I mean, the numbers were equal number of Republicans and Democrats. And so th- that finally passed and saved it. Took it out of the Congress and gave it to a bipartisan commission to work out. Uh, then there was the base closing commission. That uh, who was the Republican congressman uh, that came up with Dick Armey? Dick Armey with Brack. Dick Armey yeah. with Brack. They took it out of the hands of Congress in order to be able to get anything done. Now I'm beginning to think that if we are going to do anything on on entitlements, we're going to have to do something similar to that. Take it out of the hands of the people who grandstand on one side or the other, the, 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 the liberal demagogues and the conservative demagogues and what have you, and put it somewhere where a nonpartisan group will put together something that they can bring back to the Congress. Now, the Congress still has to well, enact it. Yeah, but, yeah, but yeah, I, I agree. You try to have an all or nothing. Uh, agree, agree. Right. Enacted, we're coming up, we're coming up on the break. the two things that I mentioned. Right. So we're coming up on the break. We're, we're gonna we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we're gonna talk about the down ballot situation that both parties are looking at right now. Several key factors in play and the Trump effect on the drag or the thrust, depending which party. This is Backroom Politics live from Shelley's back room, 1331 Ave Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington D.C. We'll be back in one minute. Stay with us. This is Backroom Politics. Live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in a few minutes. Stay with us. Politics. 
And we're back here live in Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you never heard of. It is Back Room Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, I want to pivot a little bit and talk about the impact on the presidential election, on the down ballot uh, elections that are coming up. There is a sensitive, sensitive majority going on in the Senate for the Republicans that the Democrats are trying to take back that chamber. And even in the House, there are some key House races that could affect voting downstream, no matter who gets elected president. Uh, Alan Moore, let me start with you. Uh, one of the big, one of the big stories that came out over the weekend was the fact that uh, the uh, Democratic Senate uh, campaign committee pulled all money out of the Florida Senate race between uh, Patrick Murphy and Marco Rubio. Where did, is the, are the Democrats looking to put that money in other key races, like let's say New Hampshire against Kelly Ayotte? And they're writing off Patrick Murphy. Was that a smart move? I, well, it's news to me because I thought that they were thinking about pulling out and then, uh, and, and then we're going back in because they saw that Rubio's numbers were, were, were closing. It, it, it doesn't really matter. The, the, there's a limited amount of resources. And you spend them where you think they're going to have the greatest impact. And... Um, uh, there are still some races, several races, that are that are in play. I think Florida is one of them. I think North Carolina and, and Senator Burr is is by no means assured. Kelly Ayotte has fallen behind in New Hampshire. Um, this Obamacare news had its own impact, uh, is having its own impact in New Hampshire, where the estimated increase is, is nearly 50 percent. Um, uh, in, in, in Indiana, former Senator Evan Bayh, who people were, the Democrats were so excited that he was going to get back in the race, that he was going to come back and, and run for the Senate, turns out has just been hammered by massive outside spending about how he left Indiana, made millions of dollars as a lobbyist. Um, is that really what you want representing you in, in Indiana? That one's closed very tight. Pennsylvania, sitting Senator Pat Toomey, is hoping that he can differentiate himself enough from uh, the presidential uh, race that he can that he can do better than Trump, who's almost certain to lose Pennsylvania and still beat uh, his his opponent. Um, you know, this this <laughs> Ohio Bob Portman seems to be in in strong good shape. You still have to go. You have you have to have the votes in Missouri. There's a competitive race with Roy Blunt. Um, in, and and there's a couple of others that that uh, in Nevada in, in Nevada the Republican heck had been ahead. He uh, pulled back from his prior support of Donald Trump, and the Trump voters started to abandon him. He's now running behind in Nevada. So there's a bunch of races, you know, seven eight races that are in play. I don't expect them all to fall one way, but if they fell in a particular way, that's how the uh, the Senate could could uh, could turn. Admiral Kent, how much of a drag is Donald Trump on the overall down ballot as it relates to the Senate and even the House? Well, 
we, we talked about this a little while ago. Um, in, in the Senate, there, there, there are around four or five seats that um, if they go the way of the, of the Democratic Party, the Senate's going to be lost to Republicans. Um, you know, Kelly Ayotte, I think we talked about a little while ago, um, you know, she's, she's on the water right now. Um, so on, on the House side, you know, I think the House is going to be pretty safe, but I think I think that we're going to lose some seats there because of Trump, and and I and so 30 seats have to have to go in order for uh, the, the Republicans to lose the House. So I think the House is going to, going to be okay, but I think the Senate, the, the yeah. down ballot Senate races, really bear some watching. Uh, and I think at the end of the day, most of those folks are probably sitting there scratching their head, going, "Wow, but Bob we, Hines, I was doing yeah. so well here." But Bob Hines, you know, we, we, Alan brought up the situation with Heck in Nevada, but we look at somebody like John McCain, who has never supported Trump openly, uh, where he is out polling. He is actually reversing the mechanism uh, in Arizona. How is that unique compared to the other key races that we're talking about, such as a Kelly Ayotte, a Roy Blunt even? And, and the same thing goes for Rod Portman. Well, look at it this way. Everybody, every state is different. Everybody, you know, some states are tighter than others. Some of them have histories of being Republican or Democrat, and they have a base, and it's a little bit easier to, you know, do one thing than another. The reality is everybody who's running for office is trying to win, and uh, you know, they're not going to win. But, but hold on, Dan Lipner, when we look at Let's say, for example, Ohio. You know, Ohio, somewhat similar demographics, with the exception of maybe southeastern Pennsylvania, uh, as far as working class. Similar to Pennsylvania. Similar to Pennsylvania. uh, We see Rob Portman with a with a with a comfortable lead uh, in that race versus a Pat Toomey who's literally struggling to even keep within the margin of error. Why that differential is so close to each other? Well, I would say, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure I'm comfortable comparing Ohio and Pennsylvania that closely. I mean, yes, there is a similar working class group, but Philadelphia and the, and the Philly suburbs are just a different beast. I mean, yeah. Philadelphia is a liberal bastion, and the Philly suburbs are actually moderate areas that swing, and they're not insignificant. But those are areas that Pat Toomey has won. No, no. Very handily before. He has won handily before, but they're they're a moderate group. Republicans win in the suburbs of of Philadelphia, uh, and then Pittsburgh is predominantly a Democratic area, a conservative working class Democratic area, but Pittsburgh still is that. Ohio's not quite the same beast. Exactly. It's and very different. It, it, and it's worth noting, oh, I, I've been the person asking Bob repeatedly, what's the matter with Ohio? Since Ohio, at least in my mind, inexplicably, is still in Trump world as an outlier of the other states in the region. And I can't quite figure it out. My guess is it has something to do with Dayton and Cincinnati, because it sure as hell is in Cleveland. That's but I, I'm, I'm trying you got, to. You got it exactly right. Oh, thank you. I like being right. <laughs> First time. Yeah, yeah. Admiral Ken. Admiral Ken. Then, then, then Carl Thurman. Exactly how the state breaks. With, with regard to Arizona, John McCain is an institution in Arizona. He's been in the Senate for a good long time. 
The people in Arizona. But that's Trump country. Well, hang on, but, but, but the people in Arizona know John McCain, and there's a great deal of allegiance to him. And when, and when Trump basically said, I like uh, John McCain's not a hero, I like people who don't get captured, that was just poking those folks in the eye. And I think that's why he's been able to maintain his popularity in that state. He goes back. He has always looked out for his state. He's got a record of accomplishment, and, and, uh, and, and they, they know him. When he goes home, he goes home. Um, as far as Portman and Ohio, yeah, I, I, I defer to, to Dan and, and, uh, and, and Bob on that. Carl Tillman. Well, I think Pennsylvania, uh, I've talked to, I've talked to uh, I have a lot of friends in Pennsylvania, and they claim that Toomey hasn't been the, the best on, on uh, <clears throat> coming back to Pennsylvania and helping out a lot of people. Uh, doing the casework that they have to do. And I think that's part of the reason why uh, they're having so much trouble. Uh, uh, Let's look at North Carolina. North Carolina, Clinton today has a seven-point lead in North Carolina, which could be very good for for our Senate chances down there. Right. Dan Lipner? So so what, what I was going to say is John McCain and Toomey eventually came around. But John McCain, he may have had to, for political reasons, passively endorse Trump in a partly full-throated approach. But what was full-throated was his condemnation of every time Trump did something wrong. And to McCain's credit, speaking out against the Donald when he said things that were just wildly offensive to any reasonable person. He deserves credit for that, and he should be rewarded by the voters. I, I want to go back to something. I want to go back to something that, that both you and and, uh, and Bob said regarding Ohio, because Ohio is a political anomaly in many instances. When you look at, you know, we look at the Senate race in Ohio. It was, you know, Rob Portman very popular in Ohio, but we saw some really weird endorsements in Ohio, namely the really, really strong endorsement that the Teamsters, a labor union, gave Rob Portman in Ohio. Uh, what makes Ohio such an anomaly, Bob Hines? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a state that is not easily defined by they're going to always do this, they're going to always do that. Ohio is a uh, is on the border of the East Coast, on the western end of the East Coast. Right. And it's 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 in the it's into the Midwest, more or less, but it's not to the west. And out that, it's a it's well, a, all the south. Cincinnati's the south. And Cincinnati, no, Cincinnati is not the south. I've lived there uh, yeah. for my travel years, and it was not in the south. But you go twenty miles south. You're in the South. <laughs> but you're not in the South in Ohio. People commute from the South to Cincinnati. In order to fly to Cincinnati, you have to fly to Kentucky for crying out loud. Oh, listen, but, but, you know, the Ohio River is a real divider. It's a very dividing line. The difference between uh, Cincinnati and 20 miles north of the river and Kentucky, 20 miles south of the river, is about Night and day. 90 days. It truly is. It always has been, and it's uh, it's 
it's it's just it's just that way. So when we look at we we, we talked about the Republicans, I want to take a couple of minutes real quickly and talking about has Hillary Clinton demonstrated that she could be a drag on any races that that are foreseeable right now? Dan Lipner? In Moscow, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Who's so, right against in there? Right, right. <laughs> so the, the reason why I ask is, is because it, it's a strange dynamic where you see the top of the ticket really being a tremendous strength. I mean, even, even in George W. Bush's second term run, it wasn't this much of a drag the way that Donald Trump has really harmed down ballot. Is, is this a sign of the future, Alan Moore, that we're going to have to see the down-ballot candidates really focus on themselves instead of attaching themselves to the coattails? It all depends on the, on the, the candidate, the, the, candidate, the yeah. circumstances, the election. This is a weird one where, um, where the likely winner is, not, is historically unpopular as a winner. Um, uh, she's not historically unpopular. That would be Trump's uh, moment in history. Um, but because she is so unpopular, because she's having to draw a lot of hold, hold their nose and vote for her voters, Republicans, uh, independents, and some Democrats, um, it, it's, it remains to be seen whether people who hold their nose and vote for her, if they're Democrats or independents, will simply say, yeah, I voted for her. I might as well vote for this Democrat, too, or whether they say, I'll hold my nose for her, but I want some checks on her, and I'm going to vote for this Republican. Or this Republican has served us reasonably well. I don't have any big complaint. We don't know what the impact will be. In two weeks, we will. Right. Bob Hines and Carl Tubin. Trump is probably, uh, as a national candidate, is one of the weakest ones we've had in a long time in the Republican Party. He's just not a very nice person. He's not a popular person. He's what we've got. It's kind of a nasty George McGovern. <laughs> we <We're> less informed <laughs> nasty yeah. George McGovern. Yeah. George McGovern knew what he was talking about. <laughs> now, there's a good point. Yeah. I mean, let's call it what it is. Uh, Carl Tubin. At the beginning of, uh, of this campaign last year, uh, a lot of people were afraid of that Hillary would not have coattails. And uh, I think over the last four weeks, it's proven that she does have coattails. And uh, we'll see what the outcome is in two weeks. Dan Littner, last word. So Hillary's coattails are not Hillary herself. And this is why I've said this about Team Obama from the get-go. Hillary's coattails are the mechanism and the machine. The Clintons, to their credit, during Bill Clinton's two terms as president while running for office, remember that there were down-ticket races, there were even state races that you had to play with because democracy is a team sport. Hillary, Team Clinton is doing the exact same thing as her husband did during his run. You mean Obama finally figured out that there are other races that he should look at, and and, and that and that figuring is being is was figured out because the Clinton campaign is helping to coordinate with what the president is doing. All right, now. since Admiral Ken gave me the begging sign, Admiral Ken, real quick. I'll add just one thing on the down ticket races. So a lot of the the Republicans that I talk to that are supporting Trump are doing it because you know, their their last ditch um, their last ditch rationale is that. 
Um, they're afraid of the appointments that Hillary Clinton will make to the Supreme Court. I think that if the party, uh, if, if, it, if it wakes up in time, uh, will understand the fact that, okay, so this might be the candidate that we have, but if you really, really want to protect the, consist- the consistency of the Supreme Court, you really win need to back the Senate. Win back the Senate. I've been saying that win for back weeks. Back the Senate. Weeks. Yep. The, the Republican Party is so out in la-la land, they have missed the forest through the tree. Absolutely. Reince Priebus should be smacked in the rear end. No, fired. The, well, fired on top of it. But <laughs> Reince Priebus should be smacked in the rear end for losing sight of Donald Trump can have a list of 100 people he would appoint to the Supreme Court. The only way it happens is if you own yeah, the Senate finished. and you have judiciary. That's, that's, there's, that's there's, there's a news item that we, I don't, I, when I was away, I don't know if, you, if we dropped it, that Trump announced he's going to stop doing big dollar fundraising. And that's not just for him. That's for the RNC. Oh, it's and, such a disaster. I mean, the Washington Post literally just reported this since we've been on the air. That's an amazing thing. For the Republican presidential nominee to say he's no longer raising money, that's a staggering thing. It really gives validity to the Saturday Night Live comment that Hillary Clinton's character made the other night that she really is a Republican. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's true. And doesn't it show you the Republican Party is just disintegrating? Oh, the, oh let me tell you something. Boy, the, the, the lakes of blood that's going to yeah. happen. When that maneuver comes down, good Lord. Anyway, with that being said, it's now time for my favorite part of the show. Tell me the story where we talk about news, innuendo, and stuff we didn't cover during the rest of the show. Bob, mind telling me a story? Looking at the elections, if you're a Republican, it's very disappointing. I think we're in real deep trouble. Most of it of our own causing. I just hope we don't get killed. Good point. Congressman Al, tell me a story. Well, I got put down pretty hard when I suggested it, but uh, I think a re-examination of the fairness doctrine could do a lot to rebalance, rebalance the information going out to the public. Uh, so the two billion dollars that Trump got in free media wouldn't happen. No, it, no it's, it's not that. It's building, it's building attitudes among the public. I remember having a paper hanger in our apartment. And he was a very nice little man, and he came and he did a wonderful job hanging paper. He also brought with him a little portable radio, which he plugged into it and listened to Rush Limbaugh the whole time, driving my wife crazy. (laughs) Uh, And I think a lot of the attitudes that we're dealing with here and that Trump is taking advantage of were were really go back to to right-wing radio. Yeah. Very good. Admiral Ken, bring me a story. This uh, got reported on uh, MSNBC a couple of weeks ago. I've uh, been a little busy doing other things, but uh, I, and it goes to the discussion that we had a little while ago about uh, health care. So there's a company uh, named Gilead Sciences that produces a vaccine for hepatitis C. It costs Gilead Sciences about $100 to make that vaccine. They sell it for $1,000. Sell it for $1,000. That's per dose, isn't it? It is per dose. It is so high that veterans who need that medication are being turned away until they're very, very sick. Right. The the real stink of it is, um, you know, is that once once the profits are made, they're they're not uh, kept here in the States. They're uh, they're deposited in the bank in Ireland. So I'm not big on price controls. I think that's a, a, a move towards socialism. But, however, I do think 
that when you take a look at the entire healthcare supply chain, you don't look at the cost of medicine, you're missing the boat. Alan Moore, real quick, tell me a story. Yeah, so on this issue of the down-to-ballot stuff and the future of the Senate, I would say uh, to the Clinton people, be careful what you wish for. I think for her future, um, uh, her, her future chances, she will actually be better off with a closely – we know that the Senate will be closer than it is now. Um, I think she's better with a Republican majority of, of like, one vote than with a, than a Democratic majority of one vote. Why is that? Well, A, don't talk about Supreme Court. You need 60 votes to get a, 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 unless the Democrats change the rules again uh, to get a Supreme Court nominee through and the Republican, and that's going to influence who she can pick. But in four years, there will be 25 Senator, Senate seats uh, that, that are held by Democrats up against eight seats by Republicans. And what we, what, what, what she risks is not being able to blame the Republicans for all the failures of, uh, uh, of the next couple of years. And, and she needs a, and she's going to be pushed super hard by the progressives to compromise with them. She's got two aisles to deal with. So I think from her standpoint for accomplishments, she would be better. Her future would be better, and her accomplishments would be better if there's a slightly Republican Senate than Democrat. Carl, too, and quickly, tell me a story. Uh, real quick. Uh, Trump was in Florida this morning. He was in, his, in the state of Largo, and he was also at the rail. He had all his employees behind him, and he was urging them to come forward and say something nice about me. Uh, and he, uh, uh, he also... See when Obamacare, he said, a lot of my employees are hurting. All my employees. Because all my employees are hurting because of Obamacare. The general manager went out and tapped him on the shoulder and said, we don't have Obamacare. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> we give insurance to our yeah. people. Yeah, that's right. That was a big gap. Uh, Dan Littner, tell me a story quick. So, of uh, all the things we talk about uh, on this show and the various big conspiracy theories, that are out there. One of the things that we haven't touched on much is when government actually does a good thing to actually protect people. Wells Fargo was caught in, caught in the news publicly, and, a, and they even dethroned their CEO, thanks to it, from literally stealing from their customers. There's, it, this is not a maybe. It is now just a fact. It occurred. Part of the reason for that was thanks to the government agency that – Elizabeth Warren helped the Consumer sure. Financial Protection Bureau. There are conspiracy out, conspiracy theories out there that are nonsense. But there are real things we can talk about and real conspiracies that are actually affecting people. Those are the real issues that I really wish we were talking about. Yeah, yeah I agree. And we'll bring that up shortly. Uh, two things real quick. Number one, uh, in case you missed it, Donald Trump created his own TV network on Facebook and is now doing nightly news in a really awkward, awkward way, which includes a really creepy oil painting in the back of the set in the Trump newsroom that's freaking everybody out. Is that the one that was paid for by his uh, foundation? Possibly. Possibly by the foundation. Uh, And and then uh, number, number two is 
there is a big situation happening out in California regarding National Guard veterans. Several members of the National Guard that signed up and re-signed for long-term commitments, anywhere from four to six to as long as eight years, were given enlistment bonuses for re-signing. The state of California came back and said, $25,000. Yeah, yeah. You, anywhere from 8000 to as much as I've seen, $40,000, depending on your job, they have now said you have to pay it all back. And to the credit of Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy is starting a bipartisan fight to go to the Department of Defense and tell them, don't make them pay it back. It's not fair. That is a story that's going to be developing, and that is something we want to see. Uh, with that, on behalf of Bob Hines, Congressman Al Swift, Admiral Ken Carradine, uh, Alan Moore, Carl Tubin, and Dan Lipner, I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next week, live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob, the place to be. Absolutely. You can follow us on our webpage, backroompolitics.org. You can follow us on our Twitter feed, at backroompolitics. You can go to Facebook, facebook.com slash backroompolitics. You can also follow some of our contributions to our partners at Sidewire, sidewire.com. Folks, we will see you next week. Have a great week, America. Bye-bye. Backroom Politics.